Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Adriana, and today I'm joined by my very dear friend, Beth Lapsey, a licensed clinical mental health counselor associate. We are very grateful for you to join us today, Beth. Oh, thank you so much, Adriana. It's really a gift um, to be with you. We really wanted to bring you on, one, because you speak so eloquently about your own experience, but two, in this second season of Pilgrim Soul, we've coincidentally or providentially seemed to have a running theme of conversations that lead us back to our own healing and healing, particularly through professional therapy that's been so prominent in my life and Sophia's and in Juliana's. And so we're really grateful that you're taking this time with us today to talk about your own experience as a therapist. I was wondering if we could start first, if you could share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your professional journey, and also your spiritual journey. Yeah. So I've had the great privilege, I call it a privilege of being able to work as a mental health counselor for about a year now. And there's nothing that I've experienced that's quite as challenging and as meaningful. I grew up in rural Wyoming on a farm, and it was real ripe territory for um, for like a contemplative disposition. Both my mother and dad, uh, really, my mom had a reconversion to the faith when I was in my early adolescent middle school years. And with that, my dad entered the church. And so I was so deeply formed by seeing their own quiet, prayerful disposition. As I just continued to grow up and learn about the faith and in college, really experience a robust Christian community for the first time, I noticed also that I was having this experience of just not quite being able to connect the dots. Like I was just growing through our Lord's blessing in the contemplative life and in a life of Christian community and, and really just learning more about the sacraments and loving the sacraments. And at the same time was experiencing emotional pain. And so kind of in a very personal way, began to recognize, wow, I'm grappling with my own suffering and had not been aware of it when I was a young person, but I became aware of, oh my goodness, I'm actually living with an eating disorder and had become aware of the fact that I'd been living with anorexia since my early teenage years. And so was kind of struggling with that of, gosh, what is it to struggle in this way where I just am experiencing unfreedom. This is taking up a whole lot of interior space for me. And particularly the anorexia matured to bulimia in my post-college years and and just the experience of like isolation in that suffering Mm -hmm. that felt so disconnected. I moved home and it was incredible. I encountered this really faith-filled, talented Catholic therapist in my area, and we began to do therapy together. He actually utilized a type of therapy called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, we call it. It's a real mouthful. It's a therapy <laughs> I now practice. Um, but having done a lot of um, talk therapy prior to that, cognitive behavioral therapy, 
EMDR, um, particularly with a Catholic therapist, was so deeply integrative. It really just reflected how I was grappling with my embodiment as an embodied soul and one, you know, living kind of in the throes of this emotional suffering. It was in this period of what was really six months of having left grad school, not knowing what I was doing. I took up work at a little coffee shop and I just committed to healing. And it was through that time that I came to discern, I think I have a vocation to this work, to therapy that really attends to the mystery of the person in a way that honors that there's more than meets the eye. So it was a period of actually seven years between that experience of feeling called into counseling as a profession and actually starting up school for it. And so I had the chance to do that through a great program called Divine Mercy University, which really looks at this robust integration of the psychological sciences with a theological anthropology of the person. And then ultimately, about two and a half years ago, started my internship, my clinical internship, and graduated this past year and have been working at a private practice. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like this could be an episode on good discernment because I heard so much of the matter of your life, of your childhood, of your experiences with your own wounds and your own path of healing that directly led to this discernment to work in counseling. And that's just such a gift for me to consider vocational discernment or discernment in any matter and just looking at what's actually going on in my own life that Christ is using to talk to me. He doesn't speak to us in the abstract, but in in the midst of everything. And that was really beautiful to hear that shared so clearly. You spoke a little bit about the integration of psychology with a theological anthropology, and I was wondering if you could break that down. And even that phrase, what does a theological anthropology mean? As a person of faith, a theological anthropology is really, you know, how do we how do we see the person in front of us and how do we see ourselves through the eyes of faith? We are created in God's image and likeness. We are created out of love and for love. Mm -hmm. And at once we exist in the consequences of the fall, like with original sin comes original brokenness. And that brokenness, gosh, it manifests itself in each one of us in different ways, in ways that are beyond our doing and choosing, right? Like we suffer from ailment, from physical illness and from mental illness. And it's just part of what it is to live within brokenness. So one thing that I think about with mental health counseling is how um, our brokenness becomes manifest just in our struggles with relationship, particularly like our relationship to ourselves, to each other, Mm. and our relationship to God particularly, you know, so relationship to self, there comes this disintegration. And and so what I was mentioning in my personal story about how, how can I have such rich moments of prayer with our Lord, and then also just feel so broken and be doing things that are really hurting myself um, in terms of the eating disorder behaviors. So I experienced this like disunity in myself. And so that's something that we're dealing with 
in the mental health field that we have a brokenness reflected in our persons. There's a brokenness in how we interact with each other, oftentimes because we're standing in our own woundedness in certain patterns of how we relate with each other. We can see that, especially in families, how our wounds affect each other. And then just a woundedness in relationship to God. And so as I think about that, how does that change then the way I maybe approach the person as a mental health counselor? It means that I take a very long-term perspective and I'm really reverencing the mystery of, boy, you know, the how and why of somebody's suffering. And so as mental health counselors, we have our guidebook, which is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. And it is a mouthful, but kind of the way it approaches every diagnosis is saying, well, there's a complex multiplicity of factors that lead to this diagnosis being manifest for any one person meaning it's different for every one of us and it's a mystery. And it's a mystery of our wounds that we're born with, maybe in terms of like genetics, maybe in terms of our nature, and then also developmental. What are kind of experiences of woundedness that we just develop in relationship to our families? And with that, it's always so important I think that there's a bad um, stereotype about mental health where, you know, you say, oh, I came away saying it was my parents' fault. And, Mm -hmm. um, oh, I just, you know, that's so sorrowful, that perspective. And one thing I'll talk about a lot with the folks who I have the privilege of supporting as clients is like, your mom and dad may be just such loving and devoted parents, right? Who have the best of the intentions, And at the same time, they're broken and you're broken. None of us can escape the original woundedness, right? That's part of Mm -hmm. our nature as created, fallen, and redeemed. And so you've learned things about yourself that your mom and dad probably had no intention of teaching you, but that you just developed in relationship to their woundedness. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give a real concrete example here because I think we can talk too theoretically So the example comes from my own story. When I was ultimately working with this Catholic counselor on seeking healing from the eating disorder, what we ended up just doing through EMDR was looking at some early memories. Memories didn't have anything to do about food or anything, but they were about this deeper wound that was there. And the wound was, I'm not enough. By no means did my parents ever articulate that or mean to articulate it. You know, they always Mm -hmm. told me that I was loved and that I was enough. Mm -hmm. But I just had intuited through some of just the oddities of family relationship that I was not enough. And, And that the way I then addressed that wound was through this perfectionism. And the perfectionism eventually became manifest in an eating disorder. And it was ultimately getting to the heart of that wound of this sense of I'm not enough at the core of my being that true healing was afforded. Yeah, it strikes me the importance of having the correct understanding of the human person, particularly, I mean, in any work, but especially in this work where you're 
so intimately united with another in their own journey of healing to be able to see clearly and know with every fiber of your being that both you are made in the image and likeness of God and the person before you is made in the image and likeness of God. And the difference that has in your ability to walk with them, to both help in their journey of healing and recognize your own limitations, to, I think, hold a real belovedness for their freedom in their participation. Adriana, what you say there is so important, right? And at the beginning, you mentioned two things that are just worth drawing out, which is like human freedom and our own limitations. So one, yeah, how like as a therapist, I recognize like the freedom of the person in front of me and my own limitations of it's not just a simple input output where we do, you know, certain interventions and somebody feels better because we're always engaging this dynamic of freedom. Even more complex is like, how do we understand freedom when we're dealing with brokenness? One thing that's so beautiful and so tough and like challenging to discern, one of the reasons that, you know, I pray for just prudence and discernment and counsel whenever I'm accompanying somebody is, you know, what is unfree about how I'm acting, how I'm understanding myself, how I'm experiencing the world. And rather than just validating that, how do we tease that out and create, you know, some of the space to really grapple with that, to seek more authentic freedom? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like for you, a lot of your experience of this healing occurs through um, EMDR, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more of what that is for our listeners and for me. So EMDR, this eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, will kind of break that down in terms of why is it called that, you know, such a mouthful title. And so eye movement, it's a therapy that operates through bilateral activation. And so that could be actually through the movement of the eyes from right, left, right, left. And that might be having like a light bar with just a light that goes back and forth. And maybe, you know, so you're watching that move back and forth. It's um, analogous to the motion of the eyes in REM sleep, where your eyes would be moving back and forth. And you have the eye movement and then desensitization and reprocessing. So eye movement is a mechanism then whereby you could reprocess certain experiences. So it's very much work that's based on memory work, where we're looking back at certain memories and reprocessing through those memories as a way to promote healing. So this makes sense in the sense that EMDR was originally discovered by the founder of it, Francine Shapiro. And I think the story goes that she was walking in the woods. And so there was the bilateral back and forth movement of walking right, left, right, left. And her eyes were scanning the path back and forth. And she was looking right, left. And she noticed that she went from this state of being emotionally anxious, agitated as she was walking just becoming really calm. Mm. And she said, I think there's something to this and began to study the method, kind of developed, you know, protocols around just the simple back and forth movement that you would do of the eyes. Nowadays, you can also do it auditory, just a sound in every other ear or even holding 
just these little pulsers in your palms that would give a little pulse. And so she began to discover how effective it was and, and first utilizing it with veterans and individuals dealing with post-traumatic stress symptoms and found that whereas a traditional cognitive behavioral therapy might take several years for the remission of symptoms of PTSD, EMDR could promote the remission of those symptoms in a span of months. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So something was at play here and she found that it was effective. And then we needed as a community to discover, well, why? You know, what's mm-hmm. what's happening? What's the mechanism? Yeah, it sounds like EMDR at its foundation appreciates the person as someone made in the image and likeness of God and really the unity of body-soul that perhaps is missing in other therapies because it integrates the body so fully in the process of healing. And it's not just about the cognitive experience maybe that you would have in just a, a talk therapy. Absolutely. Yes. And really tapping into the fact that, yeah, we're embodied souls and that healing therapy ought to involve the person as an integral unity, right? With our intellect, our mind, with our emotions, with our bodies, and that it always involves the relational component and this opening to the transcendent if we're really looking at an integrated vision of the person. So one of just the most amazing things to me as a therapist in learning about EMDR and how it works is beginning to understand our neurobiology. Nowadays, we can utilize EMDR with with a host of manifestations of human suffering. Um, It's not just limited to symptoms of PTSD. You know, in my case, I really healed from symptoms of an eating disorder through EMDR. And one of the reasons why that works is because it engages what we refer to as neural networks. So neural networks, um, I'm going to give a a layman's description um, coming from what is still a lay woman's understanding. You know, I'm, I'm always in the process of learning. But so neural networks are how the brain organizes and consolidates our experiences through neural synapses. And so I like to think about a neural network as like a chain link. In this chain link, there are memories that are narrative memories. So memories I can recall of like last Christmas and being at home with the family. Memories maybe of something traumatic that's happened in one's life. But also within this neural network, there's all these implicit memories. So implicit memory is memory that the body carries but that is not something that I would say, oh yeah, I remember that time and I can describe it in this way. Implicit memory is memory that we access and understand through our sensory experience. I think a good example of implicit memory is if I'm driving my car and I'm coming up to a stoplight, I know just the amount of pressure to put on the brake. I'm not even thinking about it. I'm just braking. That's because all my implicit memory of what it is to break my car is activated. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm borrowing your car, the pressure on the brakes is going to be a little different. And I'm going to be experiencing my implicit memory of breaking in my car, but I'm going to be adjusting and I'm going to have to think through it. 
So implicit memory is incredibly powerful. We have far more implicit memory than narrative memory in our life. It is activated even prior to like a cognitive perception of something. So cognitively, you know, I would say, oh, I'm noticing that the light is switching from green to yellow and I'm going to need to prepare to break. And I could narrate those things. But even milliseconds before that's happening, neuroception is happening, which then is kicking into gear my implicit memory around that experience. And so going back to then this whole idea of neural networks, the brain has all these neural networks around similar experiences. So similar implicit memories, similar narrative memories are linked together through a neural network. What does that mean then when we're talking about therapy and EMDR? Well, when I'm doing EMDR with someone, maybe, you know, for instance, we're looking at an experience of anxiety. There's something that is referred to as attachment insecurity. An example would be a young woman is discerning marriage and notices that um, when her boyfriend is a few minutes late, she's just really anxious and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what if he's going to call it off? Or mm-hmm. is very attuned to little things in their relationship, even though um, her fiance has given her all the signs that he's committed to her. She just feels this embodied anxiety of, I don't feel like I can trust it. Mm-hmm. And so maybe she would come into the office and I'd say, okay, we're going to work on this. We're going to work on healing some of that embodied experience of anxiety, which then manifests in these worried thoughts, right? About what if he's going to leave and a chain of thoughts around that. And I'd say, let's start looking at this neural network around this anxiety and this insecurity. And maybe we look back and notice, oh, wow, in her childhood, there were experiences in her relationship with mom where mom dealt with mental illness, maybe mom dealt with symptoms of bipolar, such that sometimes mom was just able to be really present and loving, but other times mom was just really suffering and was just emotionally absent or unkind Mm -hmm. in the way she interacted with her child. And so this young woman from a young age was like, I just don't know how to calibrate to that. Like, I'm not sure. Like, I'm seeking this just secure relationship with my mom, but it's unpredictable. Mm -hmm. At the level of neuroception, her nervous system has registered that experience and is always trying to calibrate and always trying to predict, how do I get to the level of a secure attachment relationship with mom? But... Mm -hmm. The, the little ones existing in an unpredictable context, right? Mm-hmm. And so kind of that data of experience has been stored in the body in implicit memory. It's also been stored through narrative memory. Then in terms of like doing therapeutic work together, we might start with the present experience of anxiety, um, but we know that we're tapping into this neural network around an experience of insecurity in relationship. And the way EMDR would do that is it 
accesses the neural network by entering into that sensory experience. And so in my office, I'd have somebody, you know, I'd say, can you remember last week when you were really worried about your fiance not arriving for maybe your dinner out on time? How did you feel that in your body? Maybe like, oh, I just felt like my skin was crawling, or maybe I was sick to my stomach, heart was racing. It's like, okay, I just want you to be present to that. You know, what emotions were present with that? Well, super anxious, super afraid, kind of sad. So we'd kind of cue all that up. And then with EMDR as a method of healing, I'd just invite the person to think back on that memory. And then we do some of that bilateral, the back to right to left movement as they're thinking about the memory. And then we'd pause and I'd ask them what came up. And so here's the question of, well, how's that work, right? So we've talked about these neural networks, we've talked about engaging in an integral way. How is this actually helping facilitate healing? What EMDR does is that one, it like hooks into a neural network by engaging the sensory experience and the emotions with that. And then what we found is this right to left, back and forth stimulation with EMDR helps engage two key regions of the brain. It helps engage our limbic system, and that's um, the seat of our emotional processing. It's also where our emergency center is located, our fight, flight, or freeze response. Whenever somebody experiences anxiety, especially whenever we have a strong emotional experience, our limbic system really powers up and it quiets down the front part of our brain, which is our prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex could be understood as like the seat of reason, our cognitive reasoning, our problem solving, our rational thinking. That part of our brain becomes a little quiet when our limbic system is activated. So it makes it harder to think through an experience. And it also affects the way memories are stored. And so what EMDR does is it activates the limbic system and that front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and gets the two in dialogue, which actually then facilitates the reprocessing such that we can experience memories, both implicit and narrative memories that had a strong emotional charge to them in ways that we can actually adaptively process that experience. And so over time, we would see like a remission of some of those physiological symptoms and just kind of a deepening healing Thank you so much. I'm what you're saying about implicit memory and how that is more prominent in the human person than narrative memory really makes sense in my own experience. There's so much connection with our wounds episode when Sophia and I discussed five core wounds. We talked about for me my own kind of core wound of rejection and at times I've seen in myself respond intuitively to a situation and only later in prayer or contemplation can I see why I responded that way and see, was it even in response to the person in front of me or was it actually an intuitive response to that wound that I triggered this idea of that I was being rejected and I innately responded along, I guess, a previously established neural network. That was one thing I thought about while you were speaking. And the other 
I didn't go through EMDR, but in counseling, we worked a lot with memory and revisiting childhood memories and trying instead to look for Christ in those memories and to come to a place of love and seeing seeing Christ's love for me, even in that memory. It reminds me of the Psalm, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You know, if I go to the heavens, you're there. But if I make my bed in the depths, if I make my bed in Sheol, even then you are there. And to be able to come to have that in my own experience, that even in my Sheol or my hell, Jesus was there. And to let that transform, I suppose, that neural pathway. So instead of an opportunity for guilt and self-loathing, it could become a space for recognizing my own belovedness before God and seeing myself seeing my own sin, but also seeing my belovedness, coming back to the conversation we had about the inability of just pure validation to meet that need, to hold together both our brokenness and our belovedness together. Brianna, that's so powerful. What you said about that in that depth of darkness, you experienced Christ and you experienced your belovedness. I think that that really gets to the heart of it. I was reflecting lately on psychology. So psychology, the etymology of it would be psyche, which I believe in the Greek means soul. And I was thinking, so what is psychological suffering in essence? And I think it's the feeling of being alone. So for the soul to feel apart from God would be ultimate suffering. And as I just think about my work with people and my own life journey and what you just named, that so much of that experience in the mental health realm, our deepest suffering is moments where we feel so alone. Cognitive behavioral therapy often talks about core beliefs, negative core beliefs that you're endeavoring to then uproot and work through. And those negative core beliefs could be like, I'm not good enough. And abandoned, mm-hmm. and rejected, bad. I think so much of that goes back to this sense of aloneness. Yeah, theologically speaking, that corresponds exactly with our understanding of the Trinity, and we're invited into participation with the Trinity. Benedict the Sixteenth, I've said this on a previous podcast, describes the human person as a being related in love, and if we don't understand ourselves as ones who are related, then we can have no self-understanding because we're made in the image and likeness of God. So therefore, we need to be related and know of our relation to God through our relations with one another to have any knowledge of ourselves. Well, I think we're kind of coming to our time, but I was wondering if for our listeners, I think there has been a lot of destigmatization around pursuing professional therapy, but I think a stigma still exists. And what could you say for our listeners to help give courage to pursue professional therapy if something this podcast has really resonated with them? Yeah, be not afraid. And therapy can be such an important step to break through whatever darkness and isolation and and personal suffering you might be facing. There is an increasing wealth of resources out there that talk about the integration of 
faith in therapy. And so for someone who is desiring a therapy that honors the fullness of their personhood and honors their faith, I would encourage you to seek out a therapist who, who is able to do that. Yeah, thank you so much, Beth. And we also offer our listeners each week a media recommendation and a weekly challenge. And I think you have both this week. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so in terms of media recommendation, there is a great website out there called soulsandhearts.com. And Souls and Hearts is put together by a group of Catholic psychotherapists. They have lots of resources on it, several podcasts, online communities, blog entries. They also have a resource on the webpage about how to identify and choose a therapist. So that is a great offering available. In terms of a, a one thing, so we've talked a lot about our integration right, as embodied souls. And so I'd love to offer you a chance to sit with that this week. With most of the folks who I have the privilege of working with, I'll introduce them to this three-step process. The three steps are awareness, acceptance, and prayerful discernment. And I introduce that as a process, as a way of being with and processing our emotions. And so what I would encourage you to do in order to approach that three-step process is to choose a time in the day where you can sit for a few minutes quietly. For me, this is great before prayer time in the morning, um, but it could be at any point in your day. And sitting um, as, you know, kind of in a sitting position like you would begin prayer to begin to just breathe deeply. I think anytime we're breathing because the Holy Spirit is represented by breath. You know, it is itself prayer um, in mm -hmm. which God is inviting us into prayer. So begin by focusing on your breath. This could also be an opportunity to integrate some of that bilateral that we've talked about when talking about EMDR, the right to left. So you could actually tap just right, left, right, left. You could tap with your hands on your knees. And so that helps just facilitate like some mental emotional stillness and processing. So sitting down, beginning to breathe deeply, tapping from right to left, and then just practice some awareness. So first, do a scan um, just from head to toe of noticing what you're feeling. Where do you feel tension? Where do you feel pain? Where do you feel maybe some anxiety? And so just doing a scan of just noticing what you're feeling and noticing your affect, your emotion, what's attached to that. The second step, acceptance, is a little harder because whenever we generally experience physical tension or something, we tend to associate a judgment with it of, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this or why am I feeling this? So the opportunity here is in that stage of acceptance to just suspend judgment and to just accept yourself and what you're feeling. In essence, this is practicing God's loving and merciful gaze toward our person, practicing that mercy toward our person, and just I'm just accepting how I'm feeling. And then the third step, after you've taken the time, just all the while you're breathing and you're tapping from right to left, after moving through the awareness and the acceptance, is to move into prayerful discernment. Okay, Lord. I'm feeling this way. 
this is my typical pattern of what I do when I feel this way. Maybe it's a negative pattern. How can I love you? How can I love my person that you have made me to be? And how can I love others in this moment? You know, if you were feeling really anxious, maybe it's actually, okay, now I'm going to go take a walk after moving through this. Or maybe I'm going to take a moment to reconnect with my spouse or a friend. And in that just simple process, it's very hard to practice in the moment, right? Because when our emotions Mm -hmm. are high, where we can be pretty mentally clouded. So it's a great thing to practice in those times, but it's good to start in moments when we are a bit more calm. And that's why I'd recommend just carve out a space during the day at one point this week to practice that three-step method. Wow, thank you so much. I'll definitely undertake that challenge this week. Thank you so much for joining us, Beth. For our listeners, you can reach Beth by emailing us at Podcast at gmail.com and we'll definitely get your correspondence to her um thank you again beth and thanks for joining us today know of our prayers for you this week and we can't wait to see you here again next week